Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. There are so many questions that run through the minds of expectant parents, including whether their future child will be born healthy. When advances in genetic testing provide unexpected news, such as a life-threatening condition or a disability, what questions should parents consider? Coming up, we'll hear from a Connecticut father who has a son with a disability. We'll also talk with a genetics counselor and a a bioethicist, rather, about advances in prenatal screening. First, laws have been passed and legislation has been introduced in a few states that would prevent a mother from aborting a fetus that has tested for positive for Down syndrome. Those bills and laws have ignited debate over privacy and choice. Joining our conversation to tell us more about uh, those laws and legislation being proposed. On the phone with us, Jennifer Habercorn, senior health care reporter for Politico. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So what, what states have put forth this legislation, a couple of even passed laws that would um, limit or restrict the ability of a mother to abort a fetus with Down syndrome? We have five states, uh, Indiana, North Dakota, Louisiana, Ohio, and Utah is considering this legislation as well. And what prompted this to be proposed uh, in these particular states? You know, there's a lot of states that often consider abortion-related legislation. Um, Ohio and uh, North Dakota are two states that are often considering some kind of abortion legislation. Um, And this focus on Down syndrome really started when um, it was reported that Iceland has aborted almost all of the... um, fetuses that had a Down syndrome diagnosis. And that really stoked a lot of um, outrage among anti-abortion groups. And they started considering these kind of bills to prohibit this in the United States. Now, some of those uh, laws have been blocked by a federal court, I believe, in Ohio and in Indiana, because Mm -hmm. it's unconstitutional to restrict uh, the right of a woman to abort her fetus at this this step. Right. This is pretty clearly in violation of the Roe v. Wade decision and decisions that have upheld that right since then. Um, The courts have said that you cannot restrict abortion before a fetus is viable outside the womb. And uh, in this case, in a Down syndrome diagnosis case, that's typically before viability. So the courts have struck them down. Um, So that's right. When we talk about viability, I know that's also something that uh, that there's a lot of debate about. Um, but when is it not legal to have an abortion? It's about 23 weeks is viability. Um, although in the United States, the vast majority of abortions are done far earlier. And if an abortion is done at 20 weeks, it's typically because of something like a fetal um, viability situation. If if a parent has been told that the baby is not going to be able to live outside the womb, you know, one of these horrible cases in which a a baby was really wanted, but um, there's some kind of horrible complication. 
Now, this, this, these bills and laws raise the question of uh, with privacy. When, if a woman were to go to a clinic uh, to seek an abortion, she doesn't have to disclose uh, the reasons behind her decision. So, is that considered a loophole when you're thinking about these certain states that want to uh, focus in on whether a fetus has Down syndrome or not? You know, I don't know if I would call it a loophole, but it's definitely a dicey situation um, because, right, this is a situation in which the law is trying to regulate um, something that the physician at an abortion clinic might not know. They might not know that the baby has been diagnosed with this. I will say in a lot of states, um, particularly these states that are very aggressive in anti-abortion regulation, there's a lot of requirements. Um, for the patient to go through before she can get an abortion, such as a um, getting an ultrasound and having to look at it and having to wait three days. Um, so it's kind of unclear to me how, you know, you would prevent someone from going to one doctor and getting a diagnosis and then going to another for an abortion. But I will add, in some states, there's very few abortion providers. Um, you know, one one state, Mississippi, only has one abortion provider in the whole state. Um, so it's 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 unclear to me how exactly that would um, play out, but it would definitely be another restriction on a patient who's seeking an abortion. Now, when we're talking about uh, anti-abortion groups, uh, obviously that support this type of legislation and uh, these laws, again, that have been blocked in states, Ohio and Indiana. Meanwhile, what are Down syndrome advocacy groups saying about these specific bills and laws? Well, you know, they they want... Um, a, a baby or a fetus with Down syndrome to be respected for the person that they are. And um, so they're in uh, favor of this attention that's shown on the, the value that a Down syndrome child can bring into the world. On the phone with me is Jennifer Haberkorn, senior healthcare reporter for Politico. Uh, with these debates that are happening in these particular states, uh, you know, are they getting pushback for why they're focusing specifically on Down syndrome? If it's, we know there are many different um, uh, dis- disorders and conditions that uh, a fetus may encounter uh, through development. Why Down syndrome specifically? Is it because of just the Iceland attention? Yeah, I think that has shined a, a, a significant light on this um, situation. And it's also, um, you know, it's a very gut-wrenching, uh, you know, pulling on the heartstrings type situation um, that uh, I think anti-abortion advocates feel like there's a lot of sympathy behind um, a child born with Down syndrome and um, they're trying to ensure that those babies are protected. And I think the abortion rights groups, the folks that don't want to see any restrictions on um, the decision that a woman has to make, they argue that, um, you know, regardless of how sympathetic the situation may sound, the government should not have a role in deciding um, whether an abortion should take place. So that should be purely between the woman and her doctor. Meanwhile, Jennifer, uh, conversations in this country surrounding Down syndrome, how have they changed in the last uh, few decades? Uh, There's more attention uh, on individuals with uh, Down syndrome or just thinking back to uh, the news when Gerber uh, announced uh, their their baby that they focus Mm -hmm. on each year and that child has Down syndrome? Yeah, and that was the first time I think uh, that Gerber has ever had a baby with Down syndrome as their spoke baby. you know, I think Down syndrome has um, individuals with Down syndrome have um, 
you know, I think a couple decades ago, it was um, something that people weren't willing to talk about as freely as they are today. And um, perhaps that kind of snowball effect of decades has, has led to this moment where we're considering this kind of legislation in states. Um, it's definitely been something that, um, you know, I, I some Down syndrome advocates have testified um, when talking about these kind of bills. And um, I don't know if that's something that we would have seen decades ago. Jennifer Habercorn, again, a senior health care reporter for Politico. Jennifer, thanks for letting us know what's happening in these particular states. Again, uh, states that are considering uh, bills or have passed specific laws trying to restrict abortion when the fetus has a, a diagnosis or is tested positive for Down syndrome. Thanks for your time, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. This is where we live. We also wanted to talk about a prenatal screening, how advances in that screening um, allows uh, couples, mothers to know more about uh, their future children. Uh, we wanted to know more about the non-invasive tests that are now being used to, to detect genetic defects like trisomy 21, which can lead to Down syndrome. In studio with me uh, for that perspective is Alicia Craffy, prenatal genetic counselor at UConn Health. Alicia, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I spoke to you uh, several years ago about uh, this very topic of prenatal screening, Mm -hmm. Um, but certain things have changed since the last time we spoke, Mm -hmm. specifically on the tests used to detect uh, Down syndrome. Uh, what, What kind of tests are you using today? So we have a relatively new blood test, which looks at DNA from the placenta in the mother's blood. And that test can uh, looks for whether there's an extra chromosome that causes Down syndrome, the extra chromosome that causes uh, trisomy 13 or trisomy 18. Um, uh, it also looks for this rare condition called triploidy, and uh, it also can tell you if the baby is a boy or a girl. And it can be done as early as nine weeks gestation, which is seven weeks after the egg and sperm get together. So this is a test that's non-invasive, as you mentioned. Right. So uh, before we spoke, I believe that was in, in 2010, um, the test that was used prior to this one being more common. Yeah. So there have been screening, blood screening tests for Down syndrome for, you know, over 30 years now. Uh, but this test is much more accurate. So it can, instead of The other test looked at proteins from the placenta in the mom's blood, and it wasn't as predictive for Down syndrome, and there were a lot of false positives where the results would say, oh, it looks like the baby has Down syndrome and the baby does not. So this one um, picks up 99% of babies who have Down syndrome, so it's much more accurate than previous tests other than the invasive tests. And when um, someone, uh, when a woman uh, finds out that she's pregnant, is this a very common test that most women take, no matter their age, or is it advanced uh, maternal age, 35 and up? Uh, I think that probably depends on where in the country you're talking about. But here in northern Connecticut, most patients are offered the test regardless of their age. So a 16-year-old pregnant girl with a very, very small chance to have a baby with Down syndrome would be offered the test. So what happens next? So if, uh, again, a mother, a woman takes this test and and finds out that there uh, could be an issue, you said it's 99% uh, accurate, Uh, how do you then uh, counsel uh, the the mother uh, in terms of her options? So one thing to be very careful about is that even though the test picks up 99% of babies with Down syndrome, 
if the test says it looks like the baby has Down syndrome, all women of all ages coming together, there's about an 83% chance that the baby actually has Down syndrome. So there's still a good chance that the test is wrong. It's still a, a screening test. Um, but the next steps would be uh, for someone who had that test and it says it looks like the baby has Down syndrome, um, she might choose to have an invasive test like an amniocentesis around 16 weeks. That would be definitive. It would tell her yes or no. Um, she might choose to pursue ultrasounds uh, because about half of all babies with Down syndrome, we would see something unusual on an ultrasound later in pregnancy. Um, or she just might say, I'm done. I'm not going to do any more testing. If the baby has Down syndrome, the baby has Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, when you're uh, disclosing this to uh, the woman, um, how often can you talk a little bit about, you know, how what are the next steps that, that many of the people that you counsel take? Most women in this situation will go on to have uh, an invasive test like an amniocentesis. And this is something that's done um, at a doctor's office. And can you walk us through, um, and again, the chances that something could happen then to the fetus? Sure. So uh, usually in, in our area anyway, amniocentesis are not usually done in a, an OB's office. So uh, patients come to UConn Health uh, and they see the maternal fetal medicine specialist um, and they have their amniocentesis there at the hospital. Um, we counsel them that there is a risk of miscarriage with the test. That risk is about 1 in 300 to 1 in 400. Um, and there are uh, women who will say, I'm not willing to take any risk to lose the baby, so I'm not going to do this test. And others who will say, well, at this point, I have to know. And when we think about it, if you've had a test at 10 weeks and you get the results at 11 weeks, you've got a long way to go before you, find, before you deliver the baby. And for some women and couples, they just need to know. Today on Where We Live, we're talking about advances in prenatal screening. In studio with me, Alicia Craffey, prenatal genetic counselor at UConn Health. Um, if you have considered uh, taking these prenatal screens and you've had uh, time to talk with your partner about uh, the decisions that you would make, uh, um, as uh, all of us hope to have a healthy baby, uh, we want to hear from you about some of the, the questions that, that you had. Uh, you can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, at where we live. Uh, what about um, for couples who, again, um, once they go that that route and they find out, even through this uh, this more um, invasive test, that there is there is an issue with uh, their uh, their the baby that they're expecting? Um, do you ever put them in touch with uh, other people who may have children with Down syndrome to get the other side to talk out all these different options? Yes. Yeah, so even though the majority of women and couples who have a firm prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome do end up making the decision to abort the pregnancy, one of the things that we offer them is information that's provided by the um, Connecticut Down Syndrome Congress, where there are a group of parents of children with Down syndrome who have been especially trained to work with couples who have received a prenatal diagnosis and are struggling with what to do. And so um, that service has been extremely helpful. Um, and some of our, our parents who really knew nothing about Down syndrome before they had this diagnosis in their pregnancy have found that speaking with these families and even, you know, the families will say, well, come, come visit us and you can see my son or my daughter with Down syndrome and see what 
life is like here at home has been very helpful. This is where we live. Again, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Laura Lynn is calling from Old Lyme. Laura Lynn, go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, yes, good morning. I'm a, I'm a mom of a 26-year-old son who has Downs, um, and he advocates up at, the, up at the Capitol, so many know him. He lives independently, and uh, in 2015, he was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. And at that point, the kids that grew up with him, the typical peers in the school system, because he was mainstreamed, uh, wrote a wonderful, a, a wonderful uh, post on Facebook. And I'd let, just like to read that, because I think um, what we're talking about today, abortion around Down syndrome, is really out of fear and ignorance. And I did have the prenatal screening, and it didn't show that my son uh, was going to have Down syndrome. And I can truthfully say that he is one of the finest human beings I've been blessed to know, and I'm not the only one that feels that way. So I would just like to read this um, to, to the folks that are listening today. Um, this is what this young woman wrote. I know that everyone from my small town knows Justin, but for any of my other friends who may not have had the pleasure, I'll put it this way. If someone were to say, look on the bright side, Justin is the bright side. His unwavering positive attitude and ever-present smile both captivate and inspire all of us who know him. I cherish my childhood memories with him. Justin has always gone out of his way to make me feel special. Time and time again, he has reminded me that true, undulterated goodness exists in people just by being who he is, someone who contributes only positivity and happiness to this world. And I think that really encapsulates folks with Down syndrome, uh, and I think it's important for people to, who don't know and who are ignorant and who are fearful to understand that they do bring that positivity to the world. Thank you, Laura Lynn, uh, for sharing that with us. Uh, Laura Lynn uh, was saying that when we when the debate on abortion, uh, if someone finds out if uh, the fetus has a Down syndrome based on fear and ignorance. Talk through some of the uh, mis, uh, the misperceptions that uh, people may have that, that you hear, Alicia, uh, when you're giving them that, that's, that test result. Well, I think it's more ignorance than misinformation, really. Um, it's, it seems to me that most of the women and couples that I work with who have a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome don't know anybody with Down syndrome. And so that's why it's so important for them to get the information that they need to make that decision. Um, I have to just say that all the couples that I've worked with over 31 years, it's been the most wrenching decision they've ever had to make in their lives. People don't make this decision likely, oh, you know, lightly saying, for example, oh, the baby's not perfect, so we're not going to have this baby. That's not what happens. There's a lot of soul searching and tears and grief. Um, and it's just a very, very difficult decision. Teo's calling from South Windsor. Teo, uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Um, I wanted to comment a little bit about this test because I am, um, I am a mother of a very healthy four-year-old little girl. And she was tested when I was pregnant and she tested positive and it was the most the most outrageous disservice that was done to me and to her as a fetus this test should be banned 
today, we have a test available that tests the DNA of the fetus from a simple blood draw from the mother. And they have been able to screen for Down syndrome in a much more exact manner. And that test has a 98 to 99% accuracy for uh, screening for Down syndrome. My baby tested positive, and the two weeks that I waited from that test until the DNA test was done and she was found to be okay, those two weeks were the most awful and the most disservice that I've ever, ever encountered for any service that I've ever been provided in my life. And it is a test that should be banned, having in mind that these other tests that are much more accurate exist. Not to talk about the amnio, which would kill your baby before you even knew if that baby had an issue or not. Mm. And I'll take my comment off the air. Well, thank you, Teo, for sharing that with us. And I'm so sorry that uh, you had to go through that. I've heard that from uh, mothers that I know were uh, you know, they do take these tests that are recommended, and again, they're not 100% accurate, and it's gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching what uh, couples go through when they consider uh, what kind of life their fetus may have and when the child is born perfectly healthy. Mm-hmm. It is. It's um, not a simple situation with screening tests, especially about the health of a, of a baby in utero. Um The thing that we should remember, too, is that even though most couples with an amniocentesis diagnosis of Down syndrome end up making that decision to end the pregnancy, what we're not really realizing is is that there are many, many couples who are offered these screening tests and these diagnostic tests. For example, women 35 and older are still offered amniocentesis routinely um, who say, no, I don't want that because I, if the baby you know, I love this baby, this baby is coming no matter what. Um, And if the baby has Down syndrome, I can deal with it at birth. I don't want to find out prenatally. So there's a group of people that would never consider pregnancy termination who would never have these tests. So they don't factor into our statistics. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me, Alicia Craffy, a prenatal genetic counselor at UConn Health. As we talk about advances in prenatal screening, at the top of the show, uh, we were considering some of the debate happening in certain states uh, that are trying to restrict abortion um, if the fetus has Down syndrome. Uh, we want to hear your take as well. And how will advances in prenatal screening impact future births? Coming up, we're going to be joined by a bi- bioethicist as we consider those questions as well. What conversations did you and your partner have about genetic testing? You can join us, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Earlier we learned how there are efforts in some states to restrict abortions after a mother finds out her fetus has a high likelihood of having Down syndrome. So far, the federal court has blocked such laws from taking effect in Ohio and Indiana because they're unconstitutional. Despite this, lawmakers in other states are, have proposed similar bills. In studio with me is prenatal genetic counselor Alicia Craffy, who works at UConn Health. And we wanted to talk more about uh, the advances in this technology on prenatal screening. And if people are talking about restricting abortion based on if a fetus has Down syndrome, where do we draw the line? Uh, we wanted to, to bring a bioethicist into the conversation. Dr. Inmaculada de Melo Martin is a professor of medical ethics at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York. Uh, doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So when we hear about this uh, debate happening in certain states, what questions come up in your mind about uh, why these restrictions uh, are even being considered, doctor? Um, Well, I think one of the first questions is um, this is a new way to restrict uh, the right to abortion. Um, uh, So many of these states have many other restrictions. So I think this is a way that that might make at least some people a little bit more sympathetic. Um, And so it's a way to um, uh, try to promote these restrictions in ways that might be Uh, Yeah, in ways that are a little bit more sympathetic to at least some groups of people. There's also the question of accuracy of of these screening tests. Uh, A woman is not required to have this more high-risk test before making the decision to terminate her pregnancy. That can be troubling to some, uh, no matter uh, which side they fall on in terms of uh, pro-life, the the pro-life debate. Correct, correct, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, in principle, women can choose to have an abortion without having done any tests, uh, obviously. So, um, yes, the fact that at least some of these tests can be offered earlier, um, you know, a blood test, a simple blood test, um, but that you are not required to have other tests um, means that, you know, women might make these decisions earlier uh, if they so wish. Um, and this might make it more difficult, actually, for these states to have these, uh, these constraints. Uh, earlier, we heard from the political reporter that uh, the headlines out of Iceland where uh, Down syndrome uh, is pretty much eliminated there uh, is leading right. some of these uh, lawmakers here in the U.S. to, to think about uh, restricting abortion in their particular states. Do, does it, do these tests, these advances in how we screen fetuses, does it make it more likely that Down syndrome could be eliminated here? I... I doubt it. Um, I don't think that that's um, the case. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, uh, in a in, in certain amount of time, but not in the near future, if for no other reason, as, as, as the guest um, that you have there, the genetic counselor has just said, uh, many women who do have uh, children with uh, Down syndrome choose to have those children. And many women, obviously, choose not to have any tests. I might have children with Down syndrome. Um, so it's, it seems difficult to imagine that this would be the case. And actually, some evidence shows that uh, the rate of abortion for Down syndrome has actually decreased. Um, so that might be the result of 
that this is more visible. Uh, people who have uh, children with Down syndrome have more strength. Uh, they are um, more able to uh, require resources that would make the lives of the families and the children who have Down syndrome and the adults, obviously, who have Down syndrome better, and that this makes it um, more easier for people to believe that, you know, it is not such a terrible thing at all to have a a child with Down syndrome. And I believe also the life expectancy for an individual with Down syndrome has increased uh, quite a bit from maybe as uh, far back as just 20, 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Correct, correct, yes. Um, uh, Not just their life expectancy, but also the quality of their lives, given that, again, the the, the resources that um, are available, at least in some places. Um, This is why um, uh, it seems a little bit disingenuous, the the concern of these states about abortion for uh, Down syndrome, because clearly uh, one of the uh, possibilities uh, would be to increase resources uh, for people who have children with uh, with, um, uh, Down syndrome uh, so that uh, women are less inclined, if they so wish, to uh, have an abortion for these reasons. So it seems that providing resources uh, would be a better strategy than preventing uh, women from, you know, having an abortion. Alicia, did you want to weigh in on the life expectancy? Yeah, I just wanted to mention that children with Down syndrome in the United States, people with Down syndrome in the United States today, the average lifespan is 60 years. I wanted to bring in some uh, listener calls now, again, as we talk about advances in prenatal screening. Uh, Lori's calling from Glastonbury. Lori, go ahead. Hi, yes, good morning. Um, I have a brother who has Down syndrome. He is going to be 45 this May. Um, he lives independently. The resources that are out there to um, confirm what the doctor had said are incredible compared to what they were in the 70s when their brother was born. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much support out there. And I think our, our society is much more apt to support uh, a person with Down syndrome or a child with Down syndrome in the school system as well. But I guess my concern would be if, you know, it, particularly in Iceland, this whole idea of eliminating an entire category of people with special needs. Well, if it starts with Down syndrome, then where do we go next? Which category do we go after? Muscular dystrophy, mm-hmm. cerebral palsy. Like that, that is an incredible concern to me because while being a sibling of a, of a Down syndrome person has its challenges, I think that I wouldn't be as compassionate a person if Jason wasn't in my life. Mm. Lori, thank you, and a great question. Uh, Dr. DeMello Martin, uh, your response to what Lori is saying, again, about uh, where do we draw the line? It's a slippery right. slope. Right, and um, this uh, certainly has been um, one of the main concerns of the disability community, um, how we use this test in, way that, in ways that... Um, that uh, make us believe that any disability whatsoever is a problem um, and that we use them in ways that uh, would indeed uh, make women choose not to have uh, children who might have a disability. 
And uh, we don't have any, I mean, this involves value judgments. What do we think is a life that either is worth living to us or worth living to uh, the people who we love? Um, and how do we deal with that? And um, I think the, the issue with Down syndrome is that probably is one of the most common reasons why uh, people might choose to have an abortion um, when there is a disability involved. And that, that is the reason has been made so salient. But indeed, if, if uh, we, we can have the same problem with other uh, types of tests uh, for other types of disabilities or diseases. Louise is calling from Windsor Locks. Louise, go ahead. I'm I'm a grandmother of a Down syndrome daughter, a granddaughter, and um, she has brought to our uh, family and such compassion as Lori spoke out. And we have grown to appreciate and be aware of all disabilities in a way that we never were. Uh, we, we are so thankful that she's in our life. Um, there are challenges, but there are challenges with every child. And one of the things that was so wonderful in the hospital where she was born is my daughter was visited by a, a woman with what's called Jack's Baskets. And it, this basket had things for a, a new mother as well as information about the Down Syndrome Association in her state and where she could go get support. And the mother herself shared the the joy and the gifts that her own child had given her and it was mother to mother and now my my own daughter um, makes hospital visits mm-hmm. i call it a very sacred time and um this is needed because too often the medical staff uh, is n- is not really aware or educated about children with Down syndrome, and they carry their own opinions and fears. And too often I've heard the story of a mother with a young baby, uh, which is a very vu- vulnerable time when she's just given birth, and the, the nurse or the doctor will come in and, and says, your baby has tested with Down syndrome, and then quickly leave the room. This is unacceptable today with all the n- information we have uh, that's out there. Um. Louise, thank you. I want to get our guests to respond to, to what you're bringing up. It's, it's a good point. Uh, first, to Alicia Craffy, prenatal genetic counselor at UConn Health, who's in studio with me. Uh, obviously, how medical professionals talk about this with patients is important. Absolutely. And counseling them when, in, in fact, a baby is born with a serious condition, mm-hmm. how to prepare and how to go forth. Yeah. Um, you know, geneticists uh, who are mostly pediatrician uh, pediatricians who go on to do a fellowship in genetics um, know so much more about Down syndrome than your average, you know, OBGYN or your average pediatrician. And so one of the roles that our geneticist, uh, Dr. Tucker, plays is he visits uh, the hospitals where these babies are born and speaks to the families. And I think you're right, and this mother, uh, grandmother, really is right that that first contact with somebody who's a professional is so important that it be realistic and positive rather than ignorant and negative. Uh, Dr. Ademelo uh, Martin, did you want to weigh in before we take one more call? Yes. Um, actually, I think that that's a very important thing because more and more these tests are done at the general practitioner's offices. 
uh, because there are no enough uh, geneticists, you know, or at least not in the in the particular area. And and certainly we don't have enough genetic counselors, so that that many women are getting this test and they might not be provided with information that allows them to make informed decisions. You're listening to Where We Live. Judy's calling from Guilford. Judy, go ahead. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, the reason I was compelled to call is I had the very same experience as the previous woman who called about the genetic test done that told her it was likely her child had Down syndrome. Uh, my son is now 20. He does not have Down syndrome, but I had a terrible week um, worrying and, and being concerned and then having these tough conversations with my spouse about what are we going to do. Of course, you know, there was some different type of opinion initially, right? And I said, oh, my gosh, there's no way I'm not having this child, you know. So it was a, it was a really a tough, tough time. Um, and, and the tests aren't perfect, and no test is perfect, as we know. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I just felt so, so much of her pain, and I know what that was like. So the counseling is, is not non-existent at the time of these visits and really giving them the um, information ahead of time to determine, do you even want this test? So with my subsequent pregnancies, I didn't even have the test. It was it was not even an option that I wanted to entertain. Um, but the other piece of this, and I think it's really important, is um, you know I'm also a provider and not not in uh, counseling patients in that way. But um, it's a really deeply personal decision that a, a patient has to make, and you know the provider needs to be informed and helpful. And if they can't, certainly refer. But but let you know we, we need to protect the option people to make these really tough decisions and I, I feel like what the uh, geneticist was saying and, and that there's something going on here maybe underneath the radar about limiting access for women to make that choice and that's really disturbing to me. Judy, uh, thank you for your call. Alicia, um, she was uh, making the point that uh, the choice should be preserved and whatever decision a, a family, a woman makes, that's their choice, and they should be free to do that without judgment. Yes. Uh, I think it's really important to to note that genetic counselors, this is like what we do. This is our bread and butter. Um, genetic counselors are everywhere. Um, some of them are available uh, by phone. Um, and when someone is thinking of having a test and they're not sure, a prenatal test, they're not sure if it's right for them, they could talk to a genetic counselor. If they've had a test result they're unhappy with, they can talk to a genetic counselor. I wanted to go back to Dr. Inmaculada de Melo Martin, again, professor of medical ethics at Weill Cornell Medicine. Uh, we were talking about this segment, having uh, just speaking about just advances in the last several years on how what kind of tests are used uh, to screen for uh, trisomy 21 and, and others. Uh, the question is raised, what will we be able to screen 25 years from now, doctor? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, we already are able to screen quite a lot. Um, so I can only imagine that we will be able to screen for many more things. Uh, this is one of the concerns with many of these screening tests um, is that um, we start to screening not just for what many people might agree are serious diseases and disabilities or severe diseases and disabilities, but also for susceptibilities. Um, so um, the concern is indeed that we might be, you know, that, that 25 years from now, we might be testing for things that um, are very minor, uh, uh, but that once 
this is normalized, uh, it, would it would be considered um, a problem for which many uh, women might decide to have an abortion. Mm. I, I do want to say, sorry, that, that I think one of the issues about these uh, laws uh, is that they, they, um, they force us to uh, choose, or they want us to choose between two values that we might want, that we might have. One is uh, the right of women to choose an abortion, um, and the other is uh, the belief that we should provide um, more resources and uh, increase the resources for uh, people with disabilities. So, and, and in this context, these two values appear to go into conflict, and that's the reason it might raise so many problems. Dr. Inmaculada de Mello Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Also, thanks to Alicia Craffey, prenatal genetic counselor at UConn Health. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Tom Fiorentino is president of the Arc of Connecticut Board of Directors. He's also the father of an adult son with Down syndrome. After the break, we hear his perspective. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, musician and Uganda native Sami Tay has lived through it all, from fleeing his country as a refugee to recording with Paul Simon. Tomorrow, he brings his story and his music to our show. We hope you can join us. Now, today, we've been exploring the conversations the medical community, policymakers, parents have when talking about having a child with a disability. I wanted to welcome back to the show Tom Fiorentino, president of the Arc of Connecticut Board of Directors, also the father of a son with Down syndrome. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lucy. Glad to be here. This is an emotional debate. It's not easy to talk about, but we wanted to get your perspective. You know, what's your take when you hear about certain states coming up with these laws, focusing in on fetuses that have Down syndrome? Are we missing the point? Well, I've talked to uh, folks who are very involved in Down syndrome advocacy, and their first reaction is to try to figure out, like, why are people proposing these laws? Um, is there some other agenda? And I think that's a very legitimate question that people have to ask. What they've said to me, these advocates, is, you know, we don't want to be used by anybody advancing their own agenda, wh however legitimate that agenda is, because we have our own agenda. So I, 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 when I see these laws, and firstly, you know, as you pointed out or as one of your guests pointed out, they almost all have been struck down as unconstitutional. That should surprise no one. Um, how they, even if they were found constitutional, I'm not sure how they, <laughs> how could, they could possibly operate effectively. Because if you have a right to choose to terminate a pregnancy, you have a right to say, uh, I choose to terminate the pregnancy. You don't have to say it's because there's a, how would anybody know? Mm -hmm. So now you think, well, given the impractical, you know, how impractical these laws are, what's the real, you know, agenda? Uh, but it does, you know, bring to mind questions. And if you're the parent of a child with Down syndrome, right, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a concern, I guess. Um, do some people think the world would be better off, right, without children like my child? Right. And that's a hard thing to, 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 to even contemplate. Tell us about your son. 
Well, my son is 27. When he was born, we were, <laughs> to say, put it mildly, surprised. And my wife was not 35. She was younger. So um, amniocentesis, which was the test then, uh, wasn't recommended. And I don't know that we would have done it uh, anyway because we were concerned about, you know, in some way damaging the fetus. So our son was born. And I, like I was in a state of shock. I didn't know very much about Down syndrome. Someone from UConn did come to our hospital room. I was listening to the woman you had on before. That was helpful to the extent that I could hear anything because I was like, what? <laughs> you know, there's some description of this. It's like the perfect child syndrome. You're expecting X and you get Y, right? And, you know, you fall back on people you know. My family was around to support us. But... All I remember thinking was, I'm going to do everything I can to make this child's life as as good as it can be. And that's kind of what's guided us. And it's turned out, you know, our son um, today is works in a dermatologist's office in, in Bloomfield. Uh, he works there three days a week. He's an artist. Uh, and I mean, he's an artist. I mean, I don't mean, you know, he's good. Um, he has brought a huge amount of joy to us. And it, it, like for any parent, I'm sure... It's hard to imagine what your world would be without them. At the same time, you know, it's such a personal decision. You know, are you able? Because uh, it does come with its own set of challenges. You know, uh, in Connecticut, maybe particularly right now, it comes with increased challenges. Um, Let's talk about your, what you're referring to. I understand yeah. what you're saying, but for our listeners, I think the bioethicists had even brought up this point. If we're going to, to single out a particular disability that a, a, a fetus may have, uh, why not talk about how to support families who have children, adult children, with disabilities uh, to help them as much as we can? Because the, the money, as we hear in Connecticut, it's not there anymore. Right. And one of the criticisms, I've, I think a very telling criticism I've heard or read about of these folks who are proponents of you can never abort anybody that uh, has Down syndrome is, okay, so where are you after the baby's born? Why aren't you up there advocating for increased resources for people with disabilities? And that's a really good question. I asked the same question in Connecticut. There are groups, faith-based groups, who are zealous in their um, advocacy for to protect an unborn child. Okay. Where are you at the Capitol? We're up there. I don't see you. Uh, and you could make a difference. Um, so I do think that funding in Connecticut, um, you know, because of the budget uh, crisis, uh, Connecticut has cut, cut, cut for people with disabilities. I, I don't think that the budget climate here is going to affect somebody's decision uh, about whether they bring to term, whether they have a, a child with Down syndrome. But I'll tell you that it's becoming more and more difficult as the cuts pile up and we feel like every year we're up at the Capitol kind of fighting of over ground that we thought we had won. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like we're constantly, the cuts, you know, get deeper. They go into places that we didn't think they would ever go. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, you're in a constant state of, as an advocate and as a parent of fight <laughs> uh, over these things. And that's not helpful. What's particular, we all concede, we all acknowledge a budget crisis. But, you know, the fact is that there are ways to deliver services 
uh, that are far more efficient and far more inclusive in the community than the way Connecticut delivers them. So, you know. So when a, a yeah. couple hears that, you know, there are less and less, fewer services yeah. for families, they must consider that, right? Because you're thinking about who's going to support my child when I'm not here anymore. Well, that that is something that keeps most parents, I think, of uh, a ch- uh, children with any kind of disability awake at night. What will happen when I'm not here? And it is something that I, I would just say, imagine a 25-year-old woman who gets a diagnosis, right? That, you know, and I, 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 you know, as an advocate, I would love to say, yes, in this terrible budget crisis, is. Is, is, is forcing people to abort children they otherwise might have. But I don't think a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old who has no experience with disability because, you know, right, like, like my family prior to our son being born, you know, I'm not going to make the assertion that um, they've been paying attention to what's been going on in Connecticut's budget for people with disabilities over the past several years, and that's going to be a causal, uh, there's a causal connection. But, you know, um, the fact of the matter is, though, for once the child is born and once you become super aware and super sensitive, you become super concerned about what's going on in Connecticut. That, you know, <laughs> there are states that are that border us, like Massachusetts, Massachusetts, that are so much more progressive and so much more efficient in the way they support people with any range of disabilities. And it is f- so frustrating mm-hmm. to not be able to kind of break through. The decision makers. I'm sorry. Tom, we, we just have a, a we're under two minutes before the end of the show. But for people who are listening, who are thinking about um, the future, uh, building a family, I mean, what, are, what questions do you think um, they should be considering? Again, because it c- comes down to personal choice. A family with a child with Down syndrome? If they hear that this could be a possibility for them. Yeah. Um, I think that they need to educate themselves, and I think that's not as easy as we think it is. I think people do get bad advice or incomplete advice. They need to go to places like the Down Syndrome Congress, which has recently changed its name, I believe, to the Down Syndrome Association of Connecticut. But either way, if you Google it, it'll come up, and they have people there. The Yukon resource, because you need information. Um, I can only tell you our child has been a joy for us. I can tell you, Lucy, that he has coined a term for his dad when I don't want to do something. Dad, why are you such a spirit vacuum? Right? And that's stuck. Thank you, Daniel, for that. Um, You know, they bring a lot of joy. They bring a lot of challenges. Get the information. Talk to people. Tom Fiorentino, again, president of the ARC of Connecticut Board of Directors. Thank you so much for coming My in. My pleasure, Lucy. Uh, today's show produced by senior producer uh, Lydia Brown. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff, uh, Carlos Mejia, and uh, Kayon Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>